Athletic. Right, Reds, Tony Evans here with Walk On, your Liverpool podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Well, the Bellingham Circus is over, or is it? We'll get into what it means for Fenway Sports Group, the summer rebuild, and where the Reds turn next, alongside James Pearce, Keith O'Neill, and Andy Jones. Plus, we'll talk about tragedy chanting before Saturday's Hillsborough anniversary, and look forward to Monday's visit to Ellen Road. But we'll begin, as usual, with three words. And we'll make them Bellingham themes. Kiva. I was going to say, hey, Jude, but then I, that's two words. So then I was like, well, goodbye, Jude. That could be three, technically. I know goodbye is one word, but if we we just pretend that it's three. <laughs> hey, Jude, works. goodbye. <gasps> See, this is, this is why James is so good at it. See, Andy, the Paul McCartney of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think mine's uh, what's the plan? Because now everything's just so up in the air, isn't it? We we waited and waited, and now what we waited for looks very much like it's not going to happen. James, demoralising but predictable. Yeah, well, that's that's actually sums it all up. And mine is, I expected it, but you know, let's see what the scene on the walk on Facebook group. Anton Michael Thomas. No way, says Fenway. Roy Crosby, shocking forward planning. Lewis Cotton, it's his loss. I don't know about that. Michael Boyd, <laughs> let's move on. To join our community of listeners on Facebook, just search Walk On Podcast and join the group. Well, the news came through on Tuesday night that Liverpool have cooler interest in Borussia Dortmund's Jude Bellingham after all the hype, excitement and expectation. And let's face it, he's been one of the main themes. We've talked about Bellingham more than we've talked about the midfield, although they are linked, of course. He's been deemed too expensive for the summer. James, what's your thoughts? Well, you've just given us your thoughts in three words, but expand on those three words. a few more? Yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, I mean, it, it's not a big surprise. I think, you know, our colleague David Ornstein wrote about three weeks ago that it was looking increasingly unlikely that Liverpool would buy him because of the cost of the deal and the greater financial resources of, of clubs like Manchester City and Real Madrid who were in the race. You know, I know people or people have said to me, oh, you know, it's it's all part of the game, is it? You know, a Liverpool, you know, dropping out in inverted commas to try and get the price down or or because they've already been told that, He's already picked somewhere else, but no, not, you know, from certainly the people I've spoken to say that it was, it was more the fact that from all the talks they'd had and trying to work out how much this deal would cost them, that they, they reached a point where they felt it, it stopped making sense. We know that Dortmund are really reluctant to sell him and that, you know, they've been, been quoting 150 million euros, which is about 130 million pounds. Then you'd obviously have wages and agents fees on top of that. And I think, you know, especially in a summer when, you know, I think we're all now coming round to the the reality that Liverpool won't be a Champions League club, you know, with that, with that shortfall in the finance, you know, that would be a vast, vast chunk of Klopp's transfer kitty. And this is where, you know, I, I understand the anger and the vitriol, you know, and the, and the frustration we've seen, especially online this week. But in terms of, 
in terms of spending, you know, if they've only got, say, I don't know, 160, 170 million pounds, say, it, it would make no sense to spend 130 million pounds of that on one player because we all know that Liverpool need four or five. I don't think anyone, you know, I don't think anyone thinks you just drop Jude Bellingham into this Liverpool team and it would transform them. It's and they need a lot more than that. For me, Kiva, I think one of the worst things about the whole saga was the way expectation was allowed to build up, wasn't it? And people got really excited about the thoughts of Bellingham, you know, all the bromance with Jordan Henderson and Trent and all that sort of stuff. And then we get to April and it's like, oops, uh, maybe not. Yeah, expectations have now been lowered, haven't they? I think all that build-up and noise around it was always going to happen because, let's be honest, it's happened with Kylian Mbappe where Liverpool never really ever stood a chance to sign in, but it's just certain players are linked with Liverpool and sort of takes off. But Jude Bellingham felt like it might happen. I think that's what is so devastating for fans because it felt like, as James mentioned there, he's not going to be the complete fix, but bloody hell, he would have helped, wouldn't he? Yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's a very, very good player. But it did become increasingly apparent as the weeks went by that he wasn't going to come in and be the panacea for all Liverpool's problems. And there's places to fix across the team, isn't there, Andy? Yeah, and, and places that probably at the start of the season, certainly, you, you didn't expect it to be. So, I mean, particularly the defence, I think we're talking about really, isn't it? And and suddenly this, this, this feeling that Liverpool will, you know, do really need another centre-back and maybe need a, to bring in another another right back as well. And then suddenly, when it was just a, a, a midfield rebuild, um, that suddenly become a bit of a rebuild everywhere <laughs> by the forward line and the goalkeeper. You know, the frustration, I think, just it comes from, from last summer, doesn't it? And how Liverpool looked at uh, many who, who went to Real Madrid, but then didn't look anywhere, you know, anywhere else really. And we're, and we're seemingly waiting for the right target to come along and then, you know, that right target is now too expensive. And let's be honest, everyone knew it was going to cost a lot of money. Maybe not this amount of money, but it just it just screams a, a lack of planning, doesn't it? Oh, and I mean, where does this... <laughs> this is too big a question, James, but where does it leave everyone? Where does it leave Klopp? Where does it leave the recruitment department? Where does it leave Fenway Sports Group? You have, you have less than two minutes to answer. <laughs> I think what it does is it puts Klopp, it puts the recruitment staff and it puts the owners especially under a lot more pressure. We all know that, you know, Jude Bellingham, it would have been a statement signing, like the big show of of intent that supporters wanted to see. It would have given everyone a massive lift and to miss out is is deflating. And regardless of the of the reasons behind it, you know, especially I think when, you know, they made a stand last summer, you know, when they missed out on Tishomeni, who obviously went from Monaco to Real Madrid. The message then was no, you know, we're not going to compromise. You know, who we want is not available in this window. It was the same again in January. So to then kind of wait 12 months and not get him, that I think is, you know, it, it does come down to, to poor planning. Where they go from here, I think, you know, we know that Mason Mount, is very high on on Klopp's wish list for the summer. We know that Chelsea have to sell and that he's failed to agree a new contract down there. Some of the other names we know, you know, the Brighton duo of Alexis McAllister and Casido, and, uh, both widely admired by recruitment staff as well. So so yeah, I think I think that's the, one of the things for me is that it does put extra pressure now on on getting it right because um okay, yeah, I can see the logic of needing to spread your resources around to bring in 
you know, more players than just one marquee signing. But you've got to get it right because, you know, Liverpool fans were wet, you know, their appetite had been whetted at the prospect of, you know, the most complete young midfielder in European football joining. You know, if you suddenly then, you don't know, I don't know, for argument's sake, if, if, you know, if it was Nunes from Wolves and Conor Gallagher from Chelsea, I think that would be a very underwhelming duo to come in if, you know, but if it was, if it was Alexis McAllister and Mason Mount, that, that you could both, you know, you could buy the two of them for the same fee as you would have, you would have been shelling out for Bellingham, then that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, well, personally, I'm not having Mason Mount, but there you go. Anyway, we did say before today's podcast that we wanted your questions. So let's get the first of them now. Hello, Travis here. And what I'd like to know is why should we view the reports that we're ending our pursuit of Bellingham more credibly than past reporting that we would stop pursuing Alisson, Virgil, or Thiago? What's different this time? Oh, Travis, well, thanks for that question. Well, that's um, what is different indeed. Andy, what, what do you think is different? I think the, well, the difference is the the number of circumstances, I think, that work against Liverpool in this in terms of you've got a player who is going to cost £130 million, we think, which is significantly more than any player Liverpool have bought um, before. I mean, Alisson, for example, was, what, 65, something around that. So you're talking double that. And then you've also got the, the fact that, you know, Manchester City and, and Real Madrid are both two massive powerhouses with a lot of money and a lot of financial backing that can essentially outbid and probably outpay Liverpool, what can outpay Liverpool in terms of wages. And then I think the main factor is, is the Champions League element. Liverpool are, <laughs> bar a miracle, Liverpool aren't going to be in the Champions League next season. And we know that the financial hit that that's going to have on the club and that's going to change, you would think, that is, it's it's going to leave such a huge hole in in Liverpool's balance sheet, and and it's one that in a summer where, as we said, so much needs doing to shell out so much money on one player, knowing that you need so like so much more, it just doesn't seem very feasible. Yeah, Kiva, the simply our price, haven't they on it? Yeah, and that's not really a shock, is it? Given the Jude Bellingham will go for in excess of a hundred million, he's might be one of the the most expensive players of all time. So for Liverpool to maybe think this isn't for them. And I think when you look at it, all right, it might be a bit underwhelming to not sign Jude Bellingham, we know that. But if they can get two Premier League proven midfielders, like the pair of Brighton or whoever it is, and then I think get a third one, someone like Alex Scott at Bristol City, who's probably going to go for about 25 million. And um, our colleague Nancy Froston said that Liverpool have now been linked with him, who's, you know, lighting up at Bristol a third player like that who's maybe like an Andy Robertson energy where you you know what you're kind of going to get, but you don't know in the same way. Liverpool aren't doing that anymore as much as they used to, you know, buying a player who is sort of unproven, but then they are buying them like Fabio Carvalho and they're not getting in the team. So it's kind of a difficult one to weigh up, isn't it? Before, I was just totally transfixed by the pronunciation of Bellingham. So I just, yeah, I couldn't (laughs) hear the question. I was just like, that's so cool. (laughs) I mean, just picking up on that, Tony, I mean, it it is a very different scenario for me to those three names that that, that were mentioned before. I mean, Alison, for a start, I know, you know, people have thrown out at me in the last 24 hours, you know, you know, the media wrote in the, in the February that, that Liverpool had ended their interest in Alison. Well, you re- rewind to then. And of course that was at a time when Liverpool were being quoted 85, 90 million pound by Roma. And then they ended up what, you know, it dropped to 65 million they bought him for. And also Kiev happened 
let's not forget, you know, the fair bit change between between February and the July when Liverpool signed Allison. I think that's very different. Virgil again, yes, it was right the reports that Liverpool had ended their pursuit of him that summer because you know they they got reported for tapping up essentially by Southampton. They had to back off, but I don't know anyone certainly don't there were any reports that Liverpool had kind of ended their interest in it. It was more that he won't be signing this summer, and that was correct. Um, and then with the Thiago one, I think the difference with Thiago was yes. Liverpool kind of knocked it back throughout the summer, but again, he didn't actually didn't actually join till I think it was the middle of September because it was yeah, obviously yeah. COVID affected. And also, the difference with Thiago is he was never really ever linked with anyone else. It was you know you look at Bellingham; it's a completely different situation in terms of the price involved and the caliber and the competition of clubs trying to trying to sign him. So I would love it to be some kind of smokescreen because. I think he would have been the absolute perfect fit for Liverpool, but um, yeah, I think that's clutching at straws. Yeah, I think I think you've summed it up perfectly there, James. I don't think anyone should think that this is some sort of blag that Liverpool uh, have got some other agenda going because they haven't. I think this one's over. Tony Evans here with James Pearce, Keith O'Neill, and Andy Jones with Walk On. Saturday, of course, is the 34th anniversary of Hillsborough. And it's a disaster that made an indelible mark on the city, the country, many individuals, myself included. And before the anniversary, as well as touching on a special dedicated series of stories that will be shared across the Athletic from Friday, which we'll talk about shortly, we also wanted to take time to discuss the continuing impact of the disaster. In the lead up to the 34th anniversary, in fact, for the past few years, tragedy chanting from opposition fan bases has been has not only continued, but it's grown. I mean, it's uh, it's not just the usual suspects these days: Chelsea, Manchester City, which you know we've had for quite a few years. But I mean, we've had surreal situations like Shrewsbury Town fans chanting about Hillsborough last year. And it's getting more and more widespread. It has a huge impact on the mental health of survivors and particularly the families of those who lost their loved ones back on the 15th of April, 1989. Well, Charlotte Hennessy, whose dad Jimmy died on the Leppens Lane terraces, has launched a petition to make chanting about tragedies a criminal offence and this is long long overdue and it's already received more than 15,000 signatures and you've got to sign it it's really important that you sign it Charlotte's here with us today Charlotte thank you for this I know you're you're just a a relentless campaigner for justice for education for well for everything connected with Hillsborough and the, the positive work you've done is is amazing I mean, this time of year is difficult for us all, but it must be particularly difficult for you. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, it, thanks for that, Tony. By the way, that was that was really kind. Um, I think I experienced the anniversaries uh, slightly different to everybody else because obviously I was six when the disaster happened. It was just six weeks before my seventh birthday. So when I look at my four-year-old now and my other children as they were growing up, I appreciate like how young I was and that, you know, I was still a baby really. I was actually talking about it last night um, with my husband that I don't really remember a lot about my childhood. So I can't say that, you know, it's been particularly different 
difficult um, throughout all of my life because my mum did a really good job of protecting me through all of that. But um, certainly through my adult life, it, it's been it's been a bit of a challenge, especially going through, you know, the inquests and the anniversaries since Duckenfield was found not guilty of there, particularly bitter. For me, it seems to me there's two two strands to this. One, there's the tragedy chanting. You know, we, we saw it at Chelsea, as I say, we expected from them, you know, even at, uh, around the Hillsborough Independent Panel, you know, they were, they were, they were disrupted them in a silence at Wembley, um, for the semi final. But there's also the abuse that you, and you get unrelenting abuse on social media. And it's almost as if the, all the lies of 1989 are being amplified. And they seem to me to be worse than ever. Yeah, you know, like you were just saying then about, you know, the tragedy tragedy chanting and things getting worse. And I, I think the irony of that is we're expected to believe these people on Twitter and they say, well, Duckenfield was found not guilty. And, the, the you know, the, the trials of Denton, Foster and, and, and Metcalf, they were thrown out. So we're expected to believe that, but we're not expected to believe that Lord Justice Taylor, the new inquests, the HIP report... And every other inquiry, as always, completely vindicated Liverpool fans. So mm. we can believe that Duckenfield's not guilty because a judge said so, but we're supposed to ignore that Liverpool fans are completely innocent and we're not to blame for the Hillsborough disaster, despite multiple reports saying so. Like, it's just ridiculous. So is this whole notion of, um, I'm sick of being told that always the victim is about Heisel. How can Liverpool fans have been the victims of Heisel. We've never said that Liverpool fans were the victims at Heisel. We've never proclaimed that they were anything but responsible. And we've always owned that shame and that stain for, you know, for, for the wrongs that they did. And there's no moving away from that. There's no denying it and there's no justifying it. So to, to say, oh, yeah, it's about Heisel. Well, how? What an absolute load of rubbish. Well, the Hillsborough deniers wrap themselves up in knots trying to justify what they're saying. And what they want to do is they want to sneak in this abuse through the back door. And it's uh, it, it's absolutely appalling. And it, it has a huge, as I say, huge impact on the mental health. You know, I, I know personally of people who were there that day who lived through it. Um, and James, you go around the country following Liverpool. You know, we've, we've all seen it. How much worse has it got? Yeah, I, th- I think it has got a lot worse in in recent years, and it's it's grim. I don't know if it's I don't know if, as you said, Tony, I don't know if it's the passage of time since the new inquest verdict and fans being completely exonerated. But it almost it, I just struggled to get my head around this this mentality that people try and justify it as well. Like I get it on social media all the time, and I think it's just so grim. You know, even even after you know tweeting out you know, the statements that were made after, you know, the Man City and Chelsea games recently, the number of rival fans saying, what about the Munich chant? You know, you didn't say anything about that. And it's like, if, I, if I'd if i ever ever heard any Munich chants at a Manchester United game against Liverpool, I'd call it out at the same time. It's not, no one's picking and choosing here. And I suppose that's an important point to make, isn't it, Charlotte, with this petition, this yeah. is about making it a criminal offence. Regardless, this, this is not just a Liverpool thing, this is across the board. It is. I've worded the petition to, well, I thought that I'd worded the petition to make that quite clear, but I I just, I assume that those who, you know, are coming up with these responses of, well, what about Munich? And what about, what about Heisel? Well, if you actually took the time to read the petition, you'd see that actually what I'm saying is it's not okay to chant about any tragedy or any death because regardless of what club, 
the you know those victims belong to they've still got family members and you're you know you're still subjecting them to it it's not nice to continuously have the death of your loved one thrown around a football stadium like it's banter it's not you know i attend football matches with my own son you know my, my little fella jacob is just out of all four of my sons, he lives and breathes football and he, he absolutely loves it. But at the same time, he's, he's only 11 years old. So any football player is his hero, particularly Man City players like he just Jack Grealish and Harlan to him. They're heroes, you know, they're amazing footballers. And he said to me, Mum, can we go? Can we go and watch Man City in uh, Anfield? And I'm just like, there's no way that I would ever take any of my kids anywhere near a match like that. It was bad enough when we went to um, Champions League um, game at Anfield versus uh, Napoli. You know, I couldn't believe it. I was like, we'd never been in that type of environment before. I'm certainly not going to take my children to a match where I know that their fans are going to be screaming at us, always the victims and, and everything else that they uh, that they chant and then having to explain that to him. It's just not something that I am I'm, I'm even willing to open him up to. But I mean, yeah. We can't even sit in our own homes and watch it, can we? Because it was the same when we played Man City the other week. I come home from work and we're sitting here in the living room and that's all you can hear. And we're in our own house. It's all you can hear through the TV. I think that's why you talking about it and this petition is so important because you're sat at home having been through all that you've been through in your life and just trying to watch Liverpool play football. And then you hear that and that brings all of that up for you. Like That's what these people who are chanting this kind of stuff need to realise who it's affecting and how it's affecting them. Like how they don't realise that already is beyond me, but it's just, Ooh. it feels just cruel, doesn't it? And it's, it's happening that much now that it just feels like, when's it going to stop? Like Arsenal fans not doing it felt like a real, like, Oh, that was, it was like was a luxury, so nice. wasn't it? Yeah. 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 And it's, it's absolutely, it, it, it's astounding that people would use tragedies and the deaths of People and like you say, chill. You brought up Heisel. I get there all the time on social media. Yeah, you never mentioned the Heisel, and I've written two books about us. You know what I mean? Uh, I've I've written about it probably more than anyone else in the English speaking media. What else can we do about it, chill? Let's get this law through. Well, I mean. I don't think I'm going to change the law. I don't think, I think I'm realistic. I don't think I'm going to change the law. However, me creating this petition has really ruffled feathers. It's got people talking about it. It's got them paying attention. Um, I think that the club needs to do more. I think that we need to start paying attention to what survivors are saying. They are telling us that survivors are committing suicide. I'm currently supporting someone who's um, a, a survivor and his mental health. Um, and it is a direct result of hate chanting and constantly being, you know, having these things screamed at matches. Um, his mental health is just, I'm really worried about him without breaching confidentiality. And, um, you know, and I think that it's that really, it's, it's the survivors. They've been through enough, you know, and we, we just need to always remember that. Yes, you know, we as families, we have done a lot for the fight. We have. But when survivors were asked to give evidence at the inquest, even though they knew that it was taking them back to the darkest 
most terrifying time of their lives, they never hesitated. There was no questions asked. They were coming, they were giving evidence and they did it. And they've always told the truth. So they deserve more. We need to start protecting them now. We've done all that we can for the 97. They've had fresh inquests. We know what happened to them. Um, there's no going back where Duck and Field's concerned. He's been found not guilty. We've got to leave it alone and just go forward, you know, and making sure that we're getting that truth out there. And I just think that survivors, um, they they just totally deserve our support in this and, and anything that we can do to make it stop. We should do it. You know, I can tell you from personal experience, after the Hillsborough Independent Panel and the inquests, the, the nightmares and the flashbacks stopped the starting again because people are using this as a weapon against us. But you know what? The thing is, we're not going to let it go. And, and Charlotte, I think you've just hit on, I think, the most important point. Why we are doing this is so it doesn't happen to anyone else. So future generations at football matches, and not only at football matches, get protected. I think one of the most depressing things for me is that at least two of those killed in the Manchester Arena bombing would have survived if they wouldn't have died from the same institutional problems that we saw at Hillsborough. And... People are continuing to die, and that's why we continue to fight. So thank you, Charlotte, and thank you, everything. You are living proof that always the victim's song is wrong because you're not a victim. You suffered the most horrible, horrible tragedy, but you are you are not letting that stop you, and you're doing your best to... We're, we're never going to get justice. We're never, never going to get justice. We know that. But you're doing your best to make sure no one else has to go through this. So, again, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for that. Thank you. That's really kind. There's a link to the petition in the description of the podcast, so make sure you sign that. It's really important because, all right, the law may not get changed, but we need to keep up the pressure because the one thing that we mustn't let happen is this mustn't go away. We've got to draw a line in the sand here. So that's really, really crucial. And as mentioned before, to mark the 34th anniversary, the Athletic will be releasing a dedicated series of stories featuring some of the families affected by what happened on April the 15th, 1989, including pieces by James and Andy. James, you caught up with Kerry Aspinall, the youngest sister of James Aspinall. She was only nine when her brother died, wasn't she? She was, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think lots of people will know that surname well from the fact that Kerry and James's mum, Margaret Aspinall, was, of course, the, the chair of the Hillsborough Family Support Group for, for so, so long and did so, so much incredible work in that that long fight for, for truth and justice. Um, so, yeah, it was a real pleasure to spend some time with her earlier on this week. And, you know, I think I think it's really important, these series of tributes, because... You know, sometimes, you know, people talk about the 97, don't they? And they talk about a lot in terms of, you know, lots said and written over the years in terms of exactly what happened on that day. But it's, I think this is about who exactly those people were because they, you know, they were 97 special individuals who meant so much to, to so many people. And yeah, I think the thing that struck me, it, you know, it, 34 years, but speaking to Kerry, it was like it was yesterday. It's 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 unbelievable, really. The you know, James James Aspinall was was eighteen at the time, and you know to hear her talk, and you know there was there was laughter and there was tears, as you'd expect. You know, you know he was someone who touched so many people's lives, and 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 hearing her talk, you know about how and you know following on from what Charlotte was saying that f- for her and her family, she was saying 
you know, it was one thing trying to deal with the grief, but another thing on top of that dealing with the lies and how that just made everything that much more difficult and that, and, and the pain that that's inflicted on them over so, so long. So, um, yeah, James was, you know, she, she was talking about the, the teddy bear that he gave her on Christmas day in, in 1988. And, you know, he, he just started his first job working for a shipping company in Liverpool. And, and it was like the first time that he'd, he'd bought each of the family presents. And, you know, she, you know, she said this teddy bear still in immaculate condition because it's, you know, she said to her, it means more than anything else that, you know, that, that she, that she, she's got because it was, it was the first and the last Christmas present she, she ever got from him. And yeah, and they're, they're just an incredible family. You know, I think, you know, the fact that they are still so close knit, you know, of course they, you know, they grew up as five kids in a, in a, in a small terraced house in Highton, you know, Margaret and Jimmy still, still live in that house to this day. And, but yeah, losing James uh, is, you know, has, has left a, a huge gulf in all their lives. Yeah, and the thing is as well, they were never allowed, the families, to sort of grieve on their own because they had dead children, husbands and daughters, and they were all over the newspapers and at the centre of effectively a smear campaign. Andy, you spoke to Evelyn Mills, whose brother Peter MacDonald was only 21. He went to his first proper away day and... I think that what's important about doing, you know, these type of pieces, as James sort of alluded to, is you get to find out about the, the people. You know, that's really important because you know you, you find out how you know how these people affect the people's lives and you know the the good that they brought to the world. I mean, Peter was, you know, came, you know, was just a, such a fun. You could tell he was such a fun loving person. Um, he touched so many people's lives. Um, in in, in everything he did. Um, and, and you 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 feel that even so so many years on. That the loss is is just as big as it was, you know, on the, in in those first few days, and you know, Evelyn, you know, talked about how she used to come home and, you know, music would be playing through the house, um, because Peter had a, a, a obsession with music. If you like, he always had had something on, and then suddenly, the household is never the same again, um, and it's it's just all those little things that you don't realize, or certainly, you know, people haven't been able to share, you know, what what these people were like and. Um, I mean, Evelyn had a, a, a young daughter who knew Peter would sort of babysit, and you know it was, it was her birthday just before, uh, you know, in the, in the lead up to the game, and there was a piece of cake that was cut for him, which he'd, he'd hid in the fridge that that remained in the fridge for for months because he never got to to come home and and, and eat it, and uh, when he was babysitting the you know the, the next weekend he was he was supposed to do it, so you know you, you see how the just the impact is is huge, but you also it allows us to, to learn about the people and just how, you know, what great people they were. Yeah, I think it's a really important series, Out Friday on The Athletic, and it's crucial that you read it, regardless of whether you're a Liverpool fan or not, because it's about bigger things. And as I've said before, the reason we fight on is so that this doesn't happen to anyone else and no one else has to experience what we suffered. This is Walk On, brought to you by The Athletic. To finish today's episode, we're going to hand it over to you for a couple of listener questions. I'm looking forward to this, starting with this one. Hello, everyone. My name's Richard, and my question is this. 
which Liverpool fringe players and youngsters could shine if they were given minutes in the Europa League or the Europa Conference League if Liverpool were to qualify for either competition. Ben Doak, Connor Bradley and Tyler Morton all spring to mind for me, but I'd be interested to hear your suggestions. Also regarding away days, this season's Conference League group stage offered potential trips to Florence, Riga, Edinburgh, Nice, Cologne, Stockholm, Dublin, Prague and Bratislava. Which of those cities would you like to see Liverpool play in? Thanks. Bye. Keith, I'll throw that one over to you. I mean, which of these cities do you want to see Liverpool play in? I want to see them all. You know what? I don't want to go to Madrid anymore. I don't want to go to Barcelona anymore. <laughs> I, I, you know, frankly, I'm a bit bored with it all. You know, on the Super League. Well, I'd, I'd go to Madrid if they were playing Rayo Vallecano or something like that. That might be nice and exciting. <laughs> now that is my sort of trip. You know, uh, Florence is the one that stood out for me. Not long returned from Italy and just now obsessed with it. Like Google Flights is my friend. Like I'm just searching all the time. <laughs> when can I get back to Italy? So, you know, if Liverpool end up um, in the Conference League or the Europa League, I think that will be one of the benefits to it, the positives, because, you know, fans love getting away. And I think after years of doing that, it'll just be weird not to be watching Liverpool somewhere in Europe. You know, it's those trips that really, it's never about the football, is it? It's always about the journey and just being with your mates, your family, whoever you go with, or just being on your own and finding new mates and family. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, you know, obviously Europe is a really important part of my Liverpool support and existence. I, I also think it's a huge part of our identity, James. You know, do you think it'd be better if they weren't in Europe? And secondly, which of those which of those young players would benefit from a bit of European experience? Yeah, I mean, when he hearing those that list of cities rattled off, he almost had me one over on the Europa Conference League. Um, I'm 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 torn on it to be honest. I I must admit I I I think in terms of long term benefits, in terms of the rebuild that's required this summer, it, it would be there are a lot of benefits to not being in Europe next season. And I know that that won't sit right. Kill a lot joy, of kill because, joy. <laughs> but I just and and I James and I is dreaming of a Conte Chelsea season, aren't you? <laughs> well, that's that's it. Yeah, I think you know that would be the. The perfect example, isn't it, of of what can be achieved if giving Klopp that luxury of of full weeks to prepare on the on the training field, and especially with you know trying to bed in four, probably five new faces this summer. Um, and I know people say, oh, it's okay because you know even if you're in the Europa League or the Conference League, you can play the kids, and but it's, it doesn't really work like that because you still need a coaching team to go with the kids. You still need some senior <laughs> players to play with them, and it's still you know the Thursday Sunday routine. I'm not a big fan of it, to be honest. I just think, you know, inevitably you seem to do more travelling in those competitions. You you know you're getting back early hours of of Friday at best. Then you're always playing catch up domestically because you know you lots of your lots of your Premier League games are on the Sunday. I'm at the moment. I'm in the camp of you know if you're not going to be fourth, then just be seventh or eighth and, and and miss out on Europe because I think I, I think in terms of where Liverpool are at in terms of the rebuild, if they end up in in the, one of those lesser competitions in terms of youngsters, yeah, I think he's right to mention the ones he did. I mean, it's obviously tricky at the moment because you don't know who's going to be going out on loan next season. But yeah, you'd think it would be a fantastic environment for someone like Ben Doak. You know, of course, Connor Bradley's done really well. 
at Bolton, same with Tyler Morton at, at Blackburn this season. Other names, you know, we all hope Kate Gordon can can kind of get back to where he was after all his injury issues. So it could be a platform for him. Bobby Clark's another one that I really like him. Every every academy game I've seen him play this season, he's been certainly in the top two or three best players on the pitch. And someone like Leighton Stewart as well, you know, when you're looking at kind of young goal scorers coming through, you know, he would probably see that one of those lesser competitions as an opportunity. So, um, there, you know, there, there are youngsters there who would benefit from it. I'm just not sure that Liverpool as a whole, it would be the right thing. It says a lot, doesn't it, that, that we haven't even mentioned Stefan Bajcetic and how the, the impact that he's had. He's getting rested for the re- Sunday Premier League game. It's, that's what I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's the new Bellingham. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does show, doesn't it, you know, even in the such a short space of time, you know, how quickly these players can suddenly establish themselves. And, and that's what they, these competitions can give the opportunity for others to do. And it, But even the likes of, you know, Fabio Carvalho and, you know, someone who... You know, if, if he does stay at Liverpool, you know, that you would see that as the ideal place for him to get the football that, that he certainly needs if he wants to develop. And, and it, you know, even someone like Curtis Jones, if, if Liverpool do strengthen the midfield and suddenly he's a bit lower down the pecking order, you know, these those are the, type, are the types of games that he can also, you know, you, you would see him featuring in um, regularly and you would hope that that would... That would then help his his own development to take those steps forward. Okay, so our rallying cry going forward is let's be Fulham. Let's have our final listener question <laughs> from Paul. Dear Tony, Jurgen must be fed up with the armchair critics, but he has to accept the fact that Liverpool are consistently poor away from home and he's shown very little imagination in coming up with a solution. My advice is simple. Start away games with a totally different approach and adapt as the game develops. Play Gomez and Costas as defensive fullbacks, and Trent and Robbo as wide midfielders as part of a 4-4-2 setup, with Hendo and Fabino as double six, and Salah and Nunes as on-the-shoulder strikers down the middle. Quiet the away fans for the first 20 minutes, like we used to do in the Champions League away games, then adapt as the game progresses. We can drop Trent and Robbo back into the back line and bring in two attacking wide men if we need to chase the game. If we get ahead, stay as we are and play on the counter. For goodness sake, Jürgen, try something different. You know, I'm not going to argue too much with that. Just try something. I mean, it's the way we're doing things isn't working. So, I mean, is that too outrageous, James? Now, I'm I'm all for shaking things up tactically. And I think you could definitely argue that, that things have gone a bit stale this season. But yeah, I'm not 100% on board with with that being the answer. For a start, I don't think it, you know, Liverpool's main strength is at the top end of the pitch and I'm not sure playing fullbacks in wide midfield roles and only finding room for two attackers is the, is the way to go. I'd, I'd probably go the other way and say you probably need to go 4-2-3-1 and play, play four attackers. I'd like to see Liverpool be bold on that front. So, um, yeah, all for new ideas being thrown into the melting pot, but not for me, that one. Someone, because the way football goes and it goes in cycles, someone's going to go 4-4-2 before long, aren't they, and sweep everyone away. It always happens, you know, it always comes round. Um, do you think it's worth trying, but maybe not quite with that personnel, maybe a couple of adjustments? It just feels weird to have, like, it technically be four fullbacks, wouldn't it, on the pitch? So that's the the part where I'm a bit like I know they'd be playing in midfield but 
the more the voice note went on, the more I felt convinced by it. Like, let's try it. Let's do it. Because, you know, Liverpool have been pretty poor this season. And I think sometimes you're like, what are the new ideas and inventions Klopp can come up with? We've seen Trent Alexander-Arnold sort of playing that John Stones sort of role at the weekend. I think that's as bold as maybe the ideas are going to get towards the end of this season. But as next season starts up, you know, playing in the Europa Conference League with... Four, four, fucking... Two. That could be that could be something, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I I want to see it. I want to see it. Uh, well, well, let's move on. Just finally, Andy, to Leeds on Monday night, the away form. Do you would you like to see that four four two at Leeds? <laughs> uh, if if it guaranteed Liverpool winning, yeah, I'm all for it. Yeah, the the away form. I mean, you're just thinking about it, send shivers, sort of. Danya, doesn't it? Because Liverpool have been so bad away from home that suddenly what should be a relatively routine, well, it has it certainly has in, in previous seasons against the team towards the bottom, um, suddenly look, who've literally just been beaten 5-1 by Crystal Palace and absolutely wiped the floor with. Suddenly <laughs> Liverpool go there and you think, oh God knows. <laughs> that, that's the, uh, that, that's the mad thing about it, isn't it? James, and we know that Jürgen Klopp hasn't got the tools to match Rampage and Roy Hodgson's teams. <laughs> but, you know, how do you see it panning out? Uh, I mean, the, 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 the problem is you just, you, you don't know what you're going to get from this Liverpool team, do you? I think, you know, it's, what, what scares me a little bit is it is a Monday night game under the lights and we've seen that this Liverpool team have been so brittle away from home this season. You know, if they start the game properly, if they approach it in the right manner, then they'll have they'll have far too much firepower for this Leeds team. You know, you look at what what Palace did to them, but I can see I can see Leeds starting the game well. I can see them having a good first twenty thirty minutes, and the, and the question is, are Liverpool going to be well organised and on the front foot and in terms of withstanding that? And then I'd expect them to have too much for Leeds, but. You know, the, the the problem is we've said this before so many away games this season and Liverpool have repeatedly disappointed us with what they've what they've produced. So um so yeah, I um I don't think anyone will be making any too too many bold predictions about about this one. You you just wanna see them play like they did in the last hour against Arsenal. You just wanna see them playing with that tempo and that intensity and showing that they can do it away from the comfort blanket of Anfield. Yeah, well, if a dog goes wrong, there is good news. There is a KFC, a Bentwood Services. Every cloud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so, but let's hope it doesn't because despite whether we think the Europa Conference League would be a good idea, what really is a good idea is Liverpool to try and pick up as many points as humanly possible before the end of the season because you never know what might happen. You never know. Well, that's all from Walk On. And the one thing you do know is we'll be back on Tuesday. Thanks to James, Kiva and Andy. And you for joining us and sending those voice notes. We love those voice notes. You know, they, they get us thinking. You can send your views on the game and on anything Liverpool associated over by emailing walk-on at theathletic.com. We'll see you on Tuesday, hopefully with three points from Ellen Rhodes under her belt. The Athletic. <laughs>